you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. I would ask you or invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll be in verses 14 through 21. So I want to bring you to this today. We've read from our Good Friday service um, all the way till now. We have essentially read the entire narrative from the arrest to the death to the resurrection of Christ on purpose. And so I want to bring us to this passage to really kind of show you what does the, the so what to the resurrection, the so what, what does this matter? And so I want to bring us to Second Corinthians have you seen the movie hook you know the peter pan movie and and forgive me my brain i know you raised your hand okay all right good my brain went a weird place when i was thinking about this but i'm going with it so the one with robin williams and there's a kind of a crazy character in the movie named toodles and toodles is was the lost boy who ended up coming to earth and then became a grown old man who seemed crazy, constantly roaming around looking for his lost marbles, right? Kind of pun intended. And throughout the story, the movie, kind of fast forward, Peter Pan goes back to Neverland. He realizes he's Peter Pan. He then fights Captain Hook and then comes back with Toodle's bag of marbles. And This whole time, everybody thought Toodles was just the crazy guy. Like he was the odd man out. He was the weirdo. And then all of a sudden they realized, oh, he was actually in his right mind. He knew who he was this whole time. And so I bring that to you in a very unique kind of way, is that the Apostle Paul, when he's writing the book of 2 Corinthians, he gets to a point in chapter 5 where he seems like the Toodles of the world around him. He's, He's crazy. He seems nuts for doing what he is doing. He's out of his mind, absolutely bonkers. Paul recognizes this. And he actually says, if we are beside ourselves, in other words, if we are out of our minds, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And Paul and Timothy writing this to the church of Corinth, meaning in more simple, plain terms, that Jesus is, or Paul is sold out for Jesus. He doesn't care if he looks crazy to the world. He doesn't care if people think he's bonkers. He is sold out for Jesus. And ultimately, he wants to serve and benefit the church. Something, or rather someone, has changed Paul. Paul knows something that has made him really the madman of his day. A resurrected Jesus is the one who completely wrecked and changed Paul's life. Jesus is the one who made Paul look nuts, made him look mad, make him look crazy. And it's because Jesus poured out on, onto Paul grace, mercy, and peace. So I ask you this morning, as we get ready to get into this, what has changed you? Paul went from Saul to Paul, from persecutor of the church to the biggest advocate of the church and defender of the faith. What, how have you changed? Are you mad for Jesus? Are you crazy for Jesus? Right? 
Have you ever considered how worshipful, how a worshipful understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus is to so take you over, take over your life that you look absolutely crazy to the world? And really, only you only look right in your mind to those who are in the church. Paul is so out of his mind that he is he even has the audacity to say, and he says this in the fourth chapter, he says concerning his suffering, concerning his position as an apostle, the change that he has to bear, he says they are light momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is so out of his mind that he's saying the afflictions of his life are featherweight. They mean really amount to nothing in comparison to the glory that is set before him. That means Paul had a right perspective and understanding of his sin in comparison to a holy God and what it is he was going to receive because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul transitions. He doesn't just leave them hanging. He says, so basically, let me explain to you why the gospel makes us crazy, kind of out of our mind. And this is where we get into verses 14 through 21. Paul will make the case that he has been made alive in Christ Jesus in 14 and 15. He will show in 16 through 19 how he has been reconciled to Christ. And therefore commissioned as an as a ambassador to lead others to this reconciliation. So he's been made alive to Christ. He's been reconciled to Christ. And now he's been entrusted as an ambassador of Christ or for Christ. And so this is, this is necessary. Look, the resurrection isn't just a historical event. It is a historical event, but it's more than that. It's life changing. It changes people. It changes hearts. It changes really our eternal destination. So at the end of it all, the resurrection changes Everything. It changes everything. And so let me read verses 14 through 21 in its entirety, and then we will dive into how the resurrection changes. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on therefore we have we regard no one according to the flesh even though we once regarded christ according to the flesh we regard regard him thus no longer therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come all this is from god who through christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, I pray that we understand that simple truth that you sent Jesus to become sin for us. 
And in that great exchange, we would become the righteousness of God. And this happens because of the work of Christ dying for our sins and defeating death and sin by resurrecting from the dead. May that truth in its most simple form, if anything, be the only thing. If it's the only thing that someone catches, may that be the only thing that someone catches this morning. Amen. Verses 14 and 15, the resurrection changes us from dead to alive. And so the life of the believer here in these verses, Paul says, look, this is out of my control. I'm crazy, ultimately, because the love of Christ controls us, controls us. Control has this idea of being hemmed in, being hemmed in. Paul was hemmed in with the love of God. No matter where he went, he was hemmed in with the love of Christ. If you've ever seen the movie The Patriot, I'm on a movie kick this morning apparently. So if you've ever seen the movie The Patriot, Mel Gibson's son is courting this woman and he finds himself having to stay at her home with her family. And there's this really funny scene where he's lying in bed and her mom is sitting down sewing the sheets shut with him in them, right? She's hemming him in so that he can't go anywhere, right? Being hemmed in, it seems like restrictive language here. It seems like, man, God is just wanting to bound us and to keep us away from doing anything. But hemmed in or the control of the love of Christ doesn't restrict. In fact, it frees us. It frees us from the bondage Right? Or the chains or the shackles of sin and frees us into the bounds of the love of Christ. It is the world that would try to restrict Paul and try to restrict Timothy from spreading the gospel, which is why Paul is often in chains as he is ministering. But their efforts, the world's efforts, are no more effective than the sealed tomb on the third day. Paul and Timothy conclude, that in this line of thinking, the love of God that controls them is hemmed up, hemmed up in the sacrificial death and powerful resurrection of Jesus. Really, no greater love than anyone, that anyone has this, than this, that a man should lay down his life for a friend. Jesus is the one who died for all. The death is referring to Jesus literally dying in the place of sinners as a substitute for the penalty of their sin that was ultimately meant for sinners, for you and for me. And the death that Jesus experienced on the cross was on behalf of and for those who would put their faith in Him. And so because Jesus bore the penalty of sin for sinners, therefore anyone who believes in Jesus will not have to die for their sins. And so Jesus has died for them all. And so by faith, anyone who has faith in Jesus has also died to sin. So there is no fear then for those who are in Christ of having to die for your sin anymore, of having to take on the punishment of your sin anymore. It has now all been placed on Christ. And so this is, this is what Paul and Timothy are rejoicing in. That they are no longer dead in their sins, but now they are alive with the resurrected Savior in Christ Jesus. That's the great act of love that controls Paul and Timothy. That's the love that hymns them in, that captures them 
everywhere they go. Being hemmed in carries with it this idea that no matter what, the love of Christ has got you. No matter what, it's got you. I mean, where can you go to outrun or hide from the love of Christ? Can you escape the love of Christ? Is there anywhere on the planet you can go? Or is there any level of darkness or depravity that you can steep to that would keep the love of Christ from being able to reach you? And so as a believer, it doesn't mean that this side of heaven, we are going to be perfect in every single thing that we do. We're not. But we have an advocate, one who stands in our defense, right? Pleading forgiveness. But that, that love of Christ continues to hem around us saying, stop sinning and come back and follow me. Christ isn't saying, you know what? I was for you. I love you, but you sinned this much. And so, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and break the seam open and let you just go. No, he hems us in. He keeps us in. He captures us. No matter the circumstance, no matter the persecution, no matter the affliction, no matter the guilt, no matter the condemnation that comes our way, Christ is saying, I have overcome. I have you, son. I have you, daughter. Come back to me. I've had this conversation with my kids the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you've noticed by looking at me, but I'm a rather active and loud and strong, perhaps aggressive personality. And it so happens that my offspring are equally so. And so whenever we do things well or get excited, man, we are all excited. But whenever we drop the ball on something, man, all heck breaks loose. But I've had this conversation when my kids have been frustrated or angry and, and want to push me or mom or dad or whatever away. My response has been, look, no matter what you do, I'm always going to move towards you. You can say the most angry, heinous things on the planet. You can cuss me up and down, whatever it is. They're not cussing me up and down, by the way. But you could do that, but I'm never going to run from you. I'm always going to move towards you. And that's the love of Christ. And that's the love of Christ that has been example to me, which is why I can then express that to my own children. But that he moves towards us. He doesn't run away from us because we mess up or sin. Paul is enamored with that reality that the Father is always, through Jesus, coming towards him with his love. It doesn't matter where Paul goes, what sort of afflictions he's dealing with. God is always moving towards him. Paul is captured, spiritually captured. He's crazy in love with his God. And he doesn't care what the world has to think about that. And so how often do we just want to sit and wallow in our own pity, in our own guilt, in our own shame or condemnation? And we just want to stay there because it's better for people to feel sorry for us or or it's just easier than to have to fight it, right? But Jesus, His love in that moment doesn't loosen up and kick us out. It tightens down and the love of Christ says, no, no more shame, no more guilt, no more condemnation. I have you hemmed in. So then, church, what is controlling your life? Who is controlling your life? What is it, if we were to write a story about you, obviously if we wrote about Paul, he wrote about himself, we'd say he's crazy in love, out of his mind in love with Jesus. What would we say about you? 
What is the thing that you're most about? What is the thing you talk most about? What is it that people know most about you? Is it Christ? And so ultimately, why did you even come here this morning? I'm not not asking that in a negative way, but why even come here this morning? Was Jesus the real answer? Was he the hope? How does a man like Paul, someone who was so influential in his time, had so much power, so much authority, now is seemingly weak, poor, dejected, but at the same time, paradoxically, so free. How is that so? Because Paul has been won over with the love of Christ. He's been won over. Our society says we need to win. We've got to win, right? Winning, that's kind of our slogan in our society. And so we want to have the side of the upper hand of whatever side it may be, sports, politics, etc. But the gospel says you don't need to win. The goal isn't trying to win and defeat your opponent. The gospel is not a good versus evil, so to speak, where we have to win before the clock runs out. The gospel instead is winning over those who are dead in their sins and seeing them come alive in Christ Jesus. Winning them over with the love of Christ. Think, for example, when Christ was carrying the cross to to Golgotha. He didn't stop. He didn't slay all those who were around him. He allowed them to spit on him, to mock him, to curse him. Why? Because if he doesn't die on the cross, their hearts are not won over. Doesn't mean Jesus was a pushover. Doesn't mean he didn't stand for things. But his goal was not to go to war with the enemy, but to go to war for the enemy. And so this is what Paul is doing. He's not trying to overthrow or take over. He's trying to win over with the love of Christ, just in the same way that the love of Christ won him over. And so Jesus untangles us from our own sin and he hymns us in with his own love. Does that capture you? Jesus won Paul over. Jesus laid his life down so that Paul wouldn't have to die for his sins, but ultimately live. And that love controlled Paul. Does it control you? Does it control even how you engage the world? So then let us see then how it is really that Christ has won Paul over. And we see that in reconciliation. So verse verse 16 we will see the resurrection changes us to reconciled. It changes us to being alive, and now it changes us to being reconciled, meaning we were at odds with God, but now we have been reconciled to Him. We are no longer at odds with God because of the work. Verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Paul considered Jesus, before Paul was Paul, before he was a believer, he considered Jesus just to be this normal dude who wrongfully claimed to be the Messiah. He was blaspheming, right, according to his understanding. And so that's why he went after Jesus. He's nothing more than just a man who is lying. Paul had sought to put the followers of Jesus to death, and that was until Jesus showed up. 
Jesus showed up to Paul as Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute believers. Jesus physically shows up to Paul, strikes him down blind, but yet in his blindness would be the first time that Paul could actually see. And so Jesus came, he came to make things right between God and man. You see, Jesus could have just struck Paul down and killed him, stopped persecuting my church and just slayed him, right? But he didn't because he was winning Paul over. And that picture is the picture of us all that Christ comes to win sinners over. And he does so with the aim of restoring relationship. That is what reconciliation is. Paul was made right with God and now his relationship with Jesus was in a good place. And so the ministry of reconciliation that Paul will talk about here in verses 17 through 19 is kind of twofold. First, it's restorative, meaning the work of Jesus restores relationship. That means we are being taken back to a relationship that was once friendly. Okay? Restorative. And then reconciliatory, meaning God is making things right with us. It's possible that you could reconcile with somebody, but you don't have a prior relationship. Okay? But God is saying we have a prior relationship. It existed in the garden before sin entered in. And so I'm going to restore that relationship, and I'm going to do it through the work of Jesus. That is the reconciliatory part. So first, the restorative part in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The reason I say restorative here is because it is very likely that Paul, in writing the words, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, is alluding strongly to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 through 19. And let me just give you the summation of that. The summation of that is that it is a prophecy to Israel, God's people who are um, in exile and about to be in exile, that he would restore them back to their homeland. And this was hundreds and hundreds of years prior. And so Paul here is writing to the church of Corinth, a church of Gentiles, saying to them that Jesus is coming to bring you back home to a place you once had. So what was applied to the Jews in this situation in Isaiah is now being broadened out and applied to both Jews and Gentile, to everybody in the world who would have their faith in Jesus. But you might say, well, that that seems hard to believe because I don't think in the Old Testament God ever showed that He was for the Gentiles. Let me read Isaiah 56, 1-8. Just 13 chapters later, God says these words. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, talking about a non-Jew, Let him not say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, 
who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners, those who are non-Jews, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God is declaring in the book of Isaiah that he is going to save people that are both Jews and Gentiles. Right? And in between Isaiah 43 and here in Isaiah 56, you have the infamous chapters talking about the Savior who would die on a cross, who would, by His stripes, we are healed. Talking about the Messiah who would come. And that Messiah is coming for not only the Jews, but also for foreigners. And so Paul is highlighting then in 2 Corinthians that the death and resurrection of Jesus is what restores sinners back to a right relationship with God through faith in Him. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you place your faith in Jesus, you will be restored back to a relationship to Him. You will be considered more than a son and a daughter. And so in Christ, then, Paul is saying, we find our rest. We find our home. We find this covenantal blood. And that is the beauty of reconciliation. It restores a relationship that was once had. But then the question becomes more of how? How does that happen? And this is where it becomes reconciliatory. Because think about it. The nature of the question of how do you reconcile a relational problem Usually, as human beings, we handle it in this way. The one who uh, caused the offense, the one who did the wrong, we, like, like parents, we tell our child, you did that wrong, you need to go and make things right with them, right? The logic of that would say, well, if we're the ones, if we're humans and we're the ones who sinned against God, then it would be our res- responsibility to go and make things right with God, right? That, that's our responsibility, And while that would be, humanly speaking, logical and in a lot of ways even biblical, but in the realm of divine logic, what that is showing is that humans cannot actually reconcile relationship with God. Only God can reconcile relationship with humans. So that means we are, as sinners, Paul is saying, we are completely dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God to move towards us and to do something to fix the problem, to do something to restore our relationship. And so how does he do this? And Paul says in 18, and all this is from God. None of it from me, none of it from you, none of it from the church of Corinth. No human being is responsible for this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Jesus made things right between us and God. He moved towards us. He made the first move to reconcile dead men to a living God. In his death is how it was accomplished and the resurrection. He bore the penalty of our transgressions and he then kept the penalty of those transgressions away from them forever. So this means, in other words, that we have a Savior who died for our sins and took the the blame for it, and we will never be held responsible for that again. Jesus took all of it completely away. Because that is the only way we can step into and have a right relationship with God is if our sin is done away with and we are perfected before the Father. And so Jesus comes down mediating between the Father and the sinner and doing the work necessary to bring the two back together, back into the garden. Had this conversation this week. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, they they sinned against God. They were in the garden. They were enjoying the garden, enjoying God, enjoying the fruits of what was in the garden, right? Not ashamed of anything, but then they sinned. And then God kicked them out of the garden. And not to just punish them going, you know what? Go get your act together before you come back. There's an aspect of you are banned and kicked out, but you notice he didn't kill them. He let them remain alive. Why? Because one day he would bring them back into the garden. Because Adam and Eve couldn't stay in their imperfected, sinful state within the presence and the holiness of God. God would have to do something to bring them back into the garden. And this is what Jesus does. He makes us perfect through him so that we can come back and enjoy God forever. So it was made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what is Paul's primary message in his ministry is. So as believers, because of the resurrection we can now see more clearly that we all, as humans, did have a right relationship with God in the garden prior to sin. Obviously, I know none of us were born in that time. But it is attributed to us. And so God is restoring us back to a relationship, really, that we had not known, but that we did have. The world says things like... you. Nothing like that can be restored, but God says otherwise. And he makes it possible through Christ. And so we are able to be restored to a relationship that we had in the guard before sin came in. And when we see that is true, then what we see is that all of us are equally guilty of sin. Equally guilty of breaking relationship, not only with God, but with one another. And when we see that reality, we begin to uh, see then also that his love, his atonement for us is also equal. And that his love for us that is poured out for us then makes us right with God and it makes us right with one another. And so we desire then in that um, in that gospel then to seek true and right relationships 
We don't seek to have manufactured godless relationships, but we seek to have real relationship with one another, meaning to our fellow brothers and sisters, we will lay ourselves down for the sake of unity, for having a relationship just like we were supposed to have in the garden. And for the sake of the non-believer, we will plead and we will beg for them to come into and no longer be in hostility against God and against us, but to come and be family with us and to worship God forever. So we're going to see the world differently now and how we relate to one another. We're no longer to regard each other according to the flesh, like Paul did Jesus, but through the eyes of redemption. We're to see one another with a much bigger lens. We now ought to be looking at every person and ask, are these people dying in their sins? Or are they dead to their sins through Jesus? Are these people living in the old or are they now living in the new? Do these people live as though they have no real home or are they living in such a way that they are anticipating a glorious home? That way of seeing the world begins to remove pride, arrogance, ego. This is why Paul became such a humble and lowly man. He was very egotistical and proud before, but now he was The scum of the earth, right? And this way of seeing restoration moves us from seeing others as they and them to us being one. And when we change into that mindset, we look outside. We just look foolish or outside of our minds to the world. And so Paul, who was seeking to overthrow Christianity, has now become the lowest. And so because of what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection, we can boldly say that we are reconciled to God and to one another. And when we are reconciled, we are then at peace with God and one another. And so how can we live reconciled lives? We do it by being hemmed up in the love of Christ. It captures us. We are enamored with the love of God in everything that we do. When we look at other people, we do so through a lens of being captured by the love of Christ. We're not just looking at enemies, but we're looking at people who are made in the image and the likeness of God and have lost their way by following the ways of this world. And so we want them to be captured by the love of God. So maybe you've wronged somebody. So what it looks like then to live this out is go admit your fault and seek forgiveness. Own it. Maybe you didn't do something wrong. The gospel says, well, just go and desire, uh, go and express your desire to be reconciled to that person and be willing to go the extra mile with them. Right. In the case of Christ, he didn't sin, but he came to us wanting to be reconciled to us and went the extra mile so that he would be. And so in the same tenacity that Jesus pursued the cross, we are to pursue one another and to pursue the Lord. And maybe you're sitting here today and you haven't been reconciled to God. Your relationship to God is hostile. Like there's enmity between you and God, right? Maybe you've said these words, you know, God and I have had it out. We've, we, we understand where we are. Like God knows the terms, right? 
But look, you can't even control the very breath in your lungs. You can't control the day-to-day. You have no control over anything. And in fact, (coughs) you're aware of that, but you're so fearful to admit it. And so I want to call you today to stop fighting against your Creator. Stop sinning against Him. Stop being so angry that He would die for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. I mean, how foolish is that? So I want to call you, if you are not at peace with the Lord, maybe the Spirit is uh, putting this upon you to respond to Him. He's moving towards you. And so you need to respond in faith and repentance this morning. Another movie, the movie Hitch. You know, Will Smith and Kevin James are on the port, are on the front porch, and Will Smith's teaching Kevin James how to kiss or not kiss on his date, right? And so he gives him the ninety ten rule, saying you go ninety percent, and then let her to go ten percent. And Kevin James goes the full hundred percent and practicing kisses Will Smith. And Will slaps him, right? When it comes to reconciliation, look, I I have a way to tie this in. When it comes to reconciliation, God is not requiring a 90-10 rule. Like, hey, I'll come 90% of the way and you come the 10. But what he's saying rather is that I'm coming 100% of the way. I've got to come in and I've got to bring you back to myself because you can't do it on your own. Right? So we need to understand that God is not asking you to do something for him because you can't. All all he's asking you to do is to believe in him by faith that what he has done for you is right. It is the right thing that Jesus is the son of God and he died for your sins. That's all he's requiring of you. He's done all the hard work. And so just as God has moved towards you for the purposes of reconciling you to him, You are to move then towards others, calling them to that same relationship. And so last, the resurrection changes us to ambassador. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. An ambassador. I like what this commentator says. He is Christ's spokesman. He does not act on his own authority, but under the commission of a greater power and authority who sent him. Paul therefore understands himself to be divinely authorized to announce to the world God's terms for peace. Being an ambassador in this time was actually a position that wasn't really opposed or threatened. It was really one of prestige. And in fact, if you actually opposed this position or brought any harm to an ambassador, it was, it was quickly rectified. So this position actually was a good position to have. But that's not the case for Paul. That's not the case for an ambassador for Christ. You know, there was a time where, you know, they they wore all the fine clothing. They had all the fine jewelry and the gold chains. But Paul wore chains, but his chains weren't gold. His chains weren't flashy. They were chains of imprisonment. And he bore the marks of beating upon his body. And even so, he told Timothy, do not be ashamed of these chains. He was full of joy. You couldn't rob him of his joy. Paul says further that God is making his appeal through us. 
So here he is, this ambassador, this one who's not treated with any respect, any amount of respect according to the world's standards, but that doesn't bother him at all. He is the instrument, he is the means, he is the person by which that God is making an appeal. God is not working through the the king. He's not working through the big-time leaders of the day in Rome or the religious leaders. He is working through a lowly man like Paul, making an appeal. And so the message of Paul's ministry is ultimately not his own. It is God's. And so through him, the Father, through Christ, is delivering a profound message. And here it is in 20 and 21. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those aren't just Paul's words. These are the words of God funneling through Paul to the church. This is what is known historically as the great exchange. The great exchange. God made his move to be reconciled to beings, to humans, to sinners. Jesus then, he wasn't made a sinner. He was made to be sin. He never sinned in his life. Yet he took on the sin of the world. Those few hours On Friday, when he was hanging on the cross and it was darkened, it was lowly, it was depressing. It was because Jesus was bearing the penalty of all our sins for all time. So all of our sin was then credited to Jesus on the cross. And so when Jesus died, those sins died along with him. And Jesus, but at the same time, he never sinned. In the life of Jesus, even to his death, he never sinned. Not one time. Yet, he bore the penalty of it. I mean, he took, he took the guilty verdict for a crime he never committed. And he did it willingly. And he planned to do it before the foundation of the world. This wasn't an afterthought. This was the gospel plan from all along. We are the sinners. We are the sinners. We are the ones who sinned. We are the ones who should be taking on the penalty of our sin, but instead Jesus bore it. And what is the exchange for all of this? The exchange is the righteousness of God. So let's get this straight. A perfect, sinless God comes down on the behalf of sinners And takes the penalty that was due them on himself so that they wouldn't have to have the penalty. And in return, he doesn't make them slaves saying, now you owe me this, you owe me this. He says, now you're free and you're righteous. And you can have a perfect, holy relationship with God. And so when Jesus rose from the grave, we didn't stay in the grave. We rose with him. Our sins died with Christ And we have come alive with Him in the resurrection. So the perfect sinlessness of Jesus has now been credited to our account. We are now perfectly righteous and holy, not because we did anything, but because He he gave it to us. We gave Him sin, He gave us life. That is the great exchange. Who in their right mind does this? 
And, it, and isn't it baffling that people are irritated with Jesus? Like you would never be offended for somebody jumping in front of a bullet for you. You wouldn't shame them and throw them under the bus. Right? You would honor them. You would care for them. But I don't know what it is in our sinful nature when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, instead of rejoicing and accepting and receiving it, we just reject it. That dumb Jesus, I could take my own sin. Right? Like we're so proud. I want us to humble ourselves and see that you can't make yourself right with God. Only God can do that. Jesus is out of his mind, right? It's the same accusation against Paul. Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. He's out of his mind just as much as his Lord. Jesus had no reason to give up anything for us except love. In love. And this is gospel reconciliation. At the cost of everything, God gave his all for our sake so that we might be with him forever. He no longer holds our sin against us. God can no more look at us and say sinner than he can look at his own son and say sinner. The righteousness of Christ is our righteousness. And so now we can go back into the garden and enjoy his presence forever and not be fearful of him coming after us and punishing us. And that is our responsibility as ambassadors. That is our responsibility to relentlessly pursue our God, to relentlessly pursue our neighbors, not hold anything against them, but give of ourselves just as Jesus gave of himself for us. If you don't know Christ this morning, I assure you we have a church full of people here who will give everything, everything they have, even their own lives for the sake of you knowing Christ. It is worth it. It is worth that much. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended. And where did he go? To the right hand of the Father. And what did he do? He poured out his Spirit. And his Spirit now resides in us. Those who have faith in him. He's the one who's changing us. He's the one who's compelling us. He's empowering us as ambassadors. And this should encourage you that the Father has chosen you and me Weak, broken vessels to be the means by which God would make His appeal. He would use us to draw others into relationship with Himself. So church, you and I have a gospel to preach. We have a message to proclaim. Right? We have reason for the world to think we are crazy and out of our minds. So church, with whom are you making an appeal? With whom are you making an appeal? Have you made an appeal to anyone in the last week or two that you know that doesn't know the Lord begging for them to come to believing faith in Jesus? I'm not talking obnoxiously. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be that guy. But like an earnest love and desire for somebody. Like, I love you so much that I want you to know that Jesus has died for your sins. Does that move you? And I know we feel the energy and excitement of resurrection. 
But what are we going to do about it? Where are we going to go? What are we going to say? We are not just going to be a church in this neighborhood that it just exists within these four walls and never does anything. We are going to go into this community. We're going to go into the communities that we also live. And we're going to go into the nations and we are going to be ambassadors for Christ all over. However, the Lord moves us because this is what he's called us to do. We are not to sit in our hands and be idle, but we are to go and share the gospel. And look, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Paul says in 6.2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't sit around and wait to be obedient. Don't sit around and wait to respond to the Lord. Do it now, for today is salvation. But Christianity is not glamorous. It's not, it's not pretty. I know a lot of Christianity that tries to be really pretty and cool. It's not. Paul was not cool Locked up in prison, like hungry and beaten. It's costly. And that's what Jesus tells us. Discipleship is costly. You have to take up your cross and bear it. It means you have to die to yourself. Die to your own opinions. Die to your way of living. Die to the worldly choices that you are being tempted with. Die to those things and follow Him. But look. You can boast in your chains like Paul did because you have Jesus. What more do you need? Need another stimulus check? Are you kidding me? Money's not going to solve the issues, right? Nothing this world has to offer will solve any real issues. We need Jesus and we need to be content with Christ that He is enough. And so it's okay to look a little wild and crazy in the world according to world standards. So as I wrap it up, let me bring us back to the movie Hook. Toodles, the seemingly crazy lost boy, at the end of that, he finds his marbles, right? Peter brings them to him. And they were his happy thoughts. It's weird, I get it. But then from that point on, he was able to fly back to Neverland, right? The crazy guy had it right the whole time. He was in the right mind. Church, this world is not our home. We're going to look crazy. We're going to look foolish according to the world. But that's because the world is blinded by its own sinful desires and wants. We have to be completely focused on Christ, on who He is and what He wants, and focused on the home that is to come. The world is dead in their sins, but we, church, we are alive in Christ. The world is at odds with God, but look, church, we are reconciled. The world gives false messages of hope, but we have been entrusted with the greatest news of all. So let us then accept the call. Let us, if we must be considered outside our minds for the sake of Christ, who made us alive, who reconciled us to himself and has entrusted us with the good news of his death and resurrection.